Why are you here today? There's a lot of places that you could be, a lot of things that you could be doing. You could be at brunch somewhere right now, sipping on a mimosa. You could be on your way to the beach if you're into really cloudy beach days, experiencing God in nature. You could be sleeping in, doing the resting on the seventh day thing. And you could even uh, listen to an Andy Stanley sermon and listen to a Hillsong, a little Hillsong, if you had any residual guilt about missing church. You could also be doing something altruistic. You could be serving at a soup kitchen or visiting the elderly in a nursing home or picking up empty beer cans at a nature preserve, but you're not. You're here at church. And for some reason, the folks in charge decided it would be a good idea if the piano player preached a sermon. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Andy. I'm married to Ashley. We have four children, Janie, Finn, Archer, and Wells. And um, I've been working at the church here for 14 years um, as the worship pastor. In all those years, I've never had any desire uh, or inclination to preach a sermon. That hasn't changed. (laughs) I'm very happy in my role playing the piano and singing some songs. So if you hate this sermon, Totally fine. Don't tell me, but please, by all means, tell everyone else so I don't ever have to do this again. If you love it, you feel free to talk to me about that, but let's just keep it between us, all right? As John said, we're in a series about spiritual practices called Rhythm, and this is a sermon about singing and worship. So we're going to get right into it and look at John chapter 4, starting in verse 4. It's not all in your bulletin, so if you don't have a Bible, you can just listen. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I feel like there are so many sermons in this story. There's sermons about salvation, repentance, racial reconciliation, the identity of Jesus as the son of God. But this is a sermon about worship and more importantly, what it means to be a worshiper. The story begins with Jesus passing through Samaria, which is no small thing because Jews hated Samaritans. To get where they were going, the normal thing to do if you were Jewish would have been to significantly extend the trip to go around Samaria. But for whatever reason, Jesus and those who are traveling with him decide to take the direct route. So they stop at a well. The disciples go into town to get some food. This woman approaches the well to draw water and Jesus asks her for some. The fact that Jesus asks her for some water not only breaks cultural barriers, but gender barriers as well. And she's taken aback that Jesus, this Jewish man, is speaking to her, a Samaritan woman. Her surprise becomes what some commentators think is mild annoyance when he begins to talk nonsense about how he will offer her water when he clearly doesn't have anything to get it with. And then he also said living water, which taken literally would have made her think of a spring or a river, neither of which was anywhere nearby. So she tauntingly asks him if he's greater than her ancestor Jacob who dug the well in the first place. And then Jesus begins to say things about never being thirsty again. And it's hard to tell for sure from the text what her tone is when she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Is she actually beginning to lean in? Like, please, I would really like some of this water. Or is she being kind of playfully sarcastic and kind of calling his bluff? Like, okay then, let's see this fancy magic water Ponce de Leon. <laughs> Fountain of youth. Dad jokes are my love language. <laughs> so we're gonna get, around, get along just fine, I think. After this, the conversation takes a hard turn. And Jesus tells her to go get her husband. And now Jesus has called her bluff. I think this is where worship begins. When Jesus calls our bluff. Has he ever called yours? Have you come face to face with the reality that nothing this life has to offer is enough to fill the emptiness inside you? Getting that date with her didn't fill it. Marrying him didn't fill it. Money didn't fill it. Having a kid didn't fill it. Success, popularity, booze, yoga, social work, even volunteering at church. Nothing fills it. But we keep going back to the well day after day, most of the time unaware 
that what we are most desperately craving is a divine interruption. She says to Jesus, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Notice she says a prophet, not the prophet. I think one of the ways that we avoid becoming true worshipers is a partial acquiescence to who Jesus is. I think Jesus is great. He said some really wise things, great teacher. I'm totally down with Jesus. It's like the old Urban Outfitters t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. Remember that one, anyone? The problem is no one ever worships their homeboy. Unless maybe you're hanging out with Kanye West, I don't know. (laughs) Jesus is not your homeboy. He's God. The woman then proceeds to talk with Jesus about the proper physical place of worship. Jews say it's Jerusalem. Samaritans say on the mountain. Commentators disagree about what she's doing here. She's either using a diversionary tactic to avoid talking further about her love life with a holy man, which is understandable, or she's actually wanting to move closer to him but is recognizing that there is a seemingly insurmountable barrier between her and him because the physical place of worship was a very, very big deal to both Jews and Samaritans. Either way, Jesus answers her question. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. A couple things about this. First, when he says, you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, it is you in the plural. He is speaking not just about her, but about all her people, all Samaritans. By extension, all people, all of us are invited to be worshipers. Second thing, he doesn't just ignore her question about who had the place right. He says salvation comes from the Jews and that the Jews worship what they know while the Samaritans worship what they don't know. So it's like the Jews were right, but only to a point because then he says a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, which is a way of saying that from now on, because of Jesus, worship is no longer bound to any particular place. This is why we often say around here, thank you for bringing the church into this place. Third, he says that the Father is seeking worshipers. And this to me has always stood out as a sort of shimmering verse in this story. It's a verse that has shaped so much of my thinking over the last 20 years or so that I've been doing this. And it's where we're gonna spend the rest of our time today. Because if the Father is seeking worship, it feels like some sort of behavior or attitude that I have to get right. But if he's seeking worshipers, then he's seeking me. And he's seeking you. Just like he was seeking that Samaritan woman. And that has a very different feel to it. So how do we become worshipers? I'm glad you asked. Because I think that is why we are here today. 
And I think that is the potential every time uh, two or more are gathered in Jesus' name. I'm not exactly the picture of fitness, despite two, uh, maybe three consecutive years of declaring that this year, this one, uh, will be the year of fitness. But last year, about this time, no kidding, it was in November, I'm pretty sure, I decided that it was not too late to salvage the year of fitness. And so I had a pretty decent run at getting up at five in the morning, going to the Y to work out. I had a similar run my senior year of college, although it was not five in the morning. So I more or less knew my way around the weight room and I would show up, I'd go through my reps and I'd leave about an hour later just in time to be home just before the kids were waking up. And I have no doubt in my mind that that was Ashley's favorite three months of our nine years of marriage. I noticed something during that time though and listen, there is no judgment whatsoever here because I have not darkened the door uh, to a gym yet this year. My body type is like if you took an olive and just kind of put a, or took a toothpick and just put an olive right in the middle of it. You remember the whole, does anybody remember the whole dad bod thing? I was really hoping that that was going to stick. I have no room to talk, but there was this group of people sitting there in the common area at the Y, and they're all drinking coffee. They're drinking coffee and talking at five when I arrive, and when I leave at six, they're still sitting there talking and drinking coffee. And they all have workout clothes on, but I never actually witnessed any of them step onto an elliptical machine or lift up a dumbbell or do anything else that could be defined as a workout. I want to submit to you that showing up to church, showing up to a worship service is a lot like showing up to the gym. Everyone here got up, got dressed, drove however many miles, and again, here we are. So now what? Well, hopefully, hopefully we work out, spiritually speaking. Every part of your experience at church affords you the opportunity to merely observe or to engage and become a bit more of who God intended you to be when he thought you up. Listen to this quote from James K.A. Smith that my friend Pete sent me a couple weeks ago. Worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. All of us tend to approach church as a consumer. This is perfectly natural, I think, given the societal context we're a part of. We show up asking questions like, was it easy to find parking? Did the girl at the door smile and greet me adequately? Was the room where I dropped off my kid on par with something I'd see at Disney? Was the music too loud, too showy, not nearly energetic enough? Been there, done that, too many new songs to keep up. Did the guy I shook hands with during the greeting time look like someone I would actually want to hang out with? Why are there so many next steps that I'm always being asked to take? Volunteer, go to this class, get baptized, become a partner, join a group. Will they ask me for money? 
Are they going to say that same thing they say every week about no one asked you here for your money? And the sermon, did I laugh? Did I cry? Did I get fed? Is this just going to be some kind of giant Old Testament history lesson? Why does it matter what it means in the Greek? Will he tell too many stories? Will he tell any stories? really like those stories. What if you were to look at these same questions not through the lens of a consumer, but instead as someone who has shown up ready for a workout? The minute you show up in the parking lot, you have an opportunity to extend grace, to exhibit patience and kindness. When that classroom you're dropping your kids off in looks a little chaotic, there's a cue to say thanks to the volunteer who's teaching all those kids they matter to God. That girl handing out the bulletins didn't even look up at you today. Say a little prayer for her. Who knows what kind of week she had or what news she may have just received. The music, near and dear to my heart. We do a lot of different styles of music here at Summit and that's on purpose. It's largely driven by the particular ways God has gifted the volunteer musicians that serve here, as well as by a desire to represent diversity when it comes to celebrating the many facets of God's character. My good friend Isaac used to say that when you show up to church and the style of the band isn't your favorite, it's an opportunity to worship God on someone else's terms. I love that. So that guy that you shook hands with during the greeting time that seemed a little bit off to you, remember that God's kingdom is big, really big. All those next steps. I I just want to say, this is where the workout really begins. Ways to serve, ways to learn, opportunities to do life with people who will call the best out of you. If you find yourself inclined, even in the slightest, to take one of these steps, by all means, take it. The offering, this isn't a sermon about why we should give. Zach, I understand, gave that sermon a couple of weeks ago. Um, But I do want to talk for just a minute about why we give during the worship service. Because it would be easier, more efficient, potentially less awkward to guess if we all just gave online or used the boxes out in the lobby. The reason we take time during the service to give is that there is perhaps no greater competitor for the affections of our heart than money. So loosening our grip on it, recognizing God as the source of every provision in our lives and cultivating hearts that are generous. All of this amounts to a significant part of our spiritual workout. So I'd like to call the ushers forward and... uh, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do a second offering. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Sure way to never preach again. So how about the sermon? Um, Since I never do this, I just want to say, I don't think I've ever sat through a sermon that God didn't use in my life. If, and this is a big if, if I started out by asking God to speak to me through it and then actually leaned in and listened. And it isn't always easy. It's not supposed to be easy. Any workout that does any good is hard. Eventually you feel great, but the process is never easy. 
if you never disagree with a point made in a sermon and have to wrestle through it, then you aren't listening close enough. And if you haven't been shaken to your core by something in the scriptures, then you haven't really engaged with them. When Jesus taught, he overturned perspectives and biases and prejudices and worldviews and once even the tables of people who were trying to turn a prophet in the temple. He disrupts us. He calls our bluff, just like he called the bluff of that Samaritan woman. If week after week you find yourself checking off spiritual boxes like, yep, got that, uh-huh, got that too, then you might need to up the incline on your treadmill because it isn't making you any better. An intellectual assent to agreement with a proposition is a far cry from obedience. Since this is a sermon about singing and since I'm the guy who spends every Sunday and most Thursdays asking people to sing, I wanna talk a little more about that. Why do we sing? Have you ever thought about it? It's kind of weird. It is. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and I, I can hardly think of another aspect of adult life that involves getting together with a bunch of people and just bursting into song together. I mean, a U2 concert, maybe, or if Zach invites you to a musical. That doesn't count, though. I was thinking about it. The musical thing, that's just watching a bunch of other adults on stage burst into song together. But if you think about it a little longer, it's also pretty strange that we don't sing more often because we were born singing. I brought empirical proof with me. This is my oldest son, Finn. Uh, he's six now. This is when he was almost three years old. I know, I know what you're thinking. He needs a little work. <laughs> the point is, uh, singing is innate. And in many cultures, it isn't just relegated to the professionals once we all grow up. When I've traveled to Africa, I've seen groups of adults sitting around a fire singing together in the evening. I was at SeaWorld once when a large group of tourists in matching t-shirts all began singing together while we were waiting for the Horizons Dolphin Show to begin. For better or for worse, though, we live in a culture where after a certain age, we have some level of apprehension around singing. I mean, I do. I know that might sound strange since I'm up here doing it all the time, but when I'm not up here and I'm out there with you all singing from time to time, I'm constantly thinking about not singing too loud so no one thinks I'm trying to show off. Not singing too quietly because I'm the worship guy and I want everyone to know we should be singing loud. And in these moments, I'm far too self-aware to actually be worshiping. And it's too bad because I'm missing an opportunity to be more who I was intended to be. Singing is a gift. It's part of our creative impulse, part of what it means to be made in the image of a creator. 
We sing for the same reason that we color or paint or dance or build things. There's an emotional component to it as well, something that needs to be said that is beyond what can be said with words alone. The melody adds another dimension to the words, or we hear a tune without any words at all, and yet we feel something, even understand something, though we would struggle to put words to what it is we have felt and understood. But what does singing have to do with becoming who we were intended to be? Like what part of, what part is singing of the spiritual workout? This is what I've been thinking about and wrestling with as I've been preparing. And I think that in our singing inhibited culture in particular, singing helps us to become more childlike, more vulnerable. And vulnerability is hard. It's hard in our human relationships with each other. It's hard in our relationship with God. But it's important because Jesus says, unless we become like little children, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. When I was younger, I was a bright-eyed idealist, believe it or not. I wore my emotions on my sleeve. I was prone to dive into life wholeheartedly with little thought to the possibility of heartbreak or disappointment. But as I got older, life, as it tends to, taught me to guard my heart. Eventually, I learned this lesson a little too well and without intending to, began to shut down my feelings so that by my late 20s, I had become overly careful, guarded, cynical. People sometimes characterize this as strength in me, but I will confess at its core, it was fear. Fear of failure, fear of getting hurt, fear of being abandoned by people I loved and trusted, all that stuff. In the midst of this period of time, I stopped crying, not on purpose, I didn't mean to, but still nothing made me cry. No sad tears, no happy tears, no habanero sauce tears or stub your toe tears. I'd been going along like this for a while and then about a year or two into our marriage, Ashley keeps asking me to, to watch this YouTube video of this woman singing. And it took her a long time uh, to get me to watch it because most of the YouTube videos she'd convinced me to watch up to this point were of people falling off treadmills. That's true. Finally, one night, we're sitting on the couch, and she's like, okay, you have to watch this. I know many of you have seen this before, and it's a little bit long, but this is what we watched. So here's the thing. <clears throat> I got about 20 seconds into her singing that song, sitting there on the couch with Ashley, and I just lost it. I think Ashley was like, oh, you okay, buddy? No more YouTube videos tonight. <laughs> I know it seems crazy because it's just this silly reality TV show. But something broke inside me when I watched that video. And I don't think it was because a woman who didn't look the part nailed the performance of a song. I think it was because as I saw the looks on people's faces change from scorn to elation. I saw the cynicism and fear and inhibition that all of us in some way carry around inside of us being 
just completely shattered and overshadowed by beauty. And that was something in that moment that I very much needed to see. I experienced something kind of like this, attending a friend's voice recital just after college. And just before it was my friend's turn to sing, an older woman got on the stage to sing the song that she had prepared. The song she had been working on was the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Well, it was awful. It was terrible, truly. Um, The timbre of her voice was kind of croaky, and none of the notes were anywhere close to being on pitch. We were all cringing, embarrassed for her, wanting the awkwardness of the moment to pass. People were making those little noises that they make with their mouths, which are the telltale signs of doing your very best not to laugh out loud. It was like this for the entire first verse of the song. But then she began to sing the second verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. And tears began to stream down her cheeks as she lifted her eyes up. And it was like she was looking straight through those ceiling tiles into the heavens. My sin, not in part, but the whole. And the words were being forced out through the lump in her throat and the impulse to sob. And then she raised her hands up and sang with such conviction words that transcended the broken, croaking, out-of-tune sound that carried them. Is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. And I, I began to weep. It wasn't because I felt guilty about the fact that I'd been biting my cheek to hold back laughter a minute before. I wept because it was beautiful. It was worship. I found out later that the reason she was taking voice lessons was that she wanted the sound of her voice to better reflect what she felt in her heart while she was participating in worship at the church we both attended. I was blown away by that. It changed the way I thought about what it meant to worship and about what it meant to lead worship because I'm not sure I've ever been led into worship quite as effectively as I was on that day sitting in that voice recital almost 20 years ago. So here's what we're going to do to close our service. We're going to sing together. And I just want to challenge you If you don't normally sing, sing. Sing loud. If you do normally sing, same challenge, sing. Sing loud. Let the melody work on you. Let it break apart some of those places in your heart that have grown old and cynical. Don't be afraid to feel something. All right, I'm going to get the notes.
is a simple chorus. You can stand. If you don't know it, you'll catch on quick.